Welcome to the EverSaline podcast, the show that ignites your passion for leadership and empowers you to develop a culture of continuous improvement. I'm your host, Matt Sims, and in each episode, we bring you fascinating insights and invaluable tips from our incredible lineup of guests. What do they all have in common? They share an unwavering dedication to excellence and are the experts in driving engagement, improving metrics, and reducing costs. The Ever So Lean Podcast with Matt Sims. You know it makes sense. This episode is sponsored by Catalyst Consulting Limited. Catalyst Consulting exists to help people and organisations work better today and be ready for tomorrow. They have a rich history of igniting business transformation using business agility, lean, Six Sigma, strategy deployment, agile and change management. They can help you and your organisation to develop the skills necessary to work and manage differently. To find out more, check out catalystconsulting.co.uk. Welcome to the Ever Celine podcast, where today we go full throttle into the thrilling world of Formula One, where lean principles and continuous improvement reign supreme. Formula One is a high-speed sport where efficiency is crucial and every performance enhancement counts. Today, we'll explore how lean principles optimise operations, drive innovation and foster success in a competitive and regulated environment. Formula One teams operate under cost-capping measures, making efficiency paramount. And by embracing lean principles, teams streamline processes, allocate resources wisely, and eliminate waste. Every action is focused on maximising performance and achieving the best results. Agility and adaptability are vital in a sport that consistently evolves. Lean enables teams to respond quickly to changing circumstances, whether it's adjusting strategies during a race or adapting to new regulations. Teams equipped with lean principles stay ahead of the competition and maintain their competitive edge. Now, safety and reliability are paramount in Formula One and lean plays a critical role in managing risks and preventing errors. Proactive risk management ensures the well-being of drivers and crew members, whilst error prevention techniques enhance reliability and overall performance. Innovation and technological advancements are at the heart of Formula One. Lean fosters a culture of innovation by encouraging teams to push boundaries, explore new ideas and leverage cutting-edge technologies. It serves as a breeding ground for groundbreaking developments that shape the future of the sport. Now, equally, teamwork is the foundation of success within Formula One. The Lean principles enhance collaboration and communication. The seamless coordination of a pit crew during a high-pressure pit stop exemplifies the power of Lean teamwork. Every member understands their role, communicates effectively and trusts their teammates, resulting in lightning-fast pit stops. Ultimately, Lean principles enable Formula One teams to compete at the highest level, drive innovation and achieve sustainable success. With continuous improvement and Lean principles at their core, teams can navigate the ever-evolving landscape of the sport and triumph on and off the track. Now today, we have the remarkable Mark Gallagher joining us, a legendary figure in Formula One. With over three decades of experience, Mark has held senior roles in prestigious teams, shaped the regulatory environment and been at the forefront of tech advancements. He has captivated audience worldwide through his media work, public speaking engagements and industry analysis. Mark is the author of several books that provide valuable insights into the sport, including Grand Prix The Last 25 Years and two editions of The Business of Winning. Most recently, he released a book called The Future Business Formula, co-authored with business coach Adrian Stallam. Mark's extensive knowledge, dedication and achievements has established him as a respected industry analyst and sought-after public speaker. His contributions continue to shape management, technology advancements and the regulatory landscape of Formula One. So buckle up and get ready for an inside look at the dynamic world of Formula One and its culture of continuous improvement with Mark Gallagher as our guide. Mark. A very warm welcome to the Everseline podcast. Delighted to be with you and thank you so much for such a massive build-up. I hope I live <laughs> up to expectations over the next few minutes. I'm sure you would. Do you know what I always think? After I give an introduction like that, I always think I need to sort of put in like a round of applause or something like you're coming on stage. <laughs> I need to edit that in. Yeah, I always imagined what my children would think if they were listening because they wouldn't recognise any of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though. Our work world and our home world is so very different. Uh, it's always the way, isn't it? Totally. No, I really appreciate you being here because you're travelling at the moment, aren't you? So you're not even at home. 
Yeah, I'm, a, I'm currently in Munich uh, in Germany and actually uh, quite topically, I'm about to speak to uh, a group of uh, senior leaders from a, a multinational technology company and we're going to be talking about what they can learn from a sports business like Formula One. And in their particular case, the challenge is one of communication. So where you have a diversified business around the world, you know, how does that group of people in different geographic locations, how do they come together and drive value and uh, innovate and all that kind of good stuff. So this is the kind of work I really enjoy doing and uh, love speaking to and meeting, quite frankly, meeting and learning from a lot of the clients that I work with. It's a fascinating topic to talk about. It really is. Give us a bit of a, a run through of your amazing career then, because you've had some incredible jobs. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Uh, my wife was just saying to me the other day that I've had quite an unusual career. Most people who work in Formula One or in motorsport tend to stick to one thing. And I think it was probably a conscious decision that I really enjoy the sport so much that I wanted to work across different facets of it. So I started briefly by working in the in the media way back in the 1980s. So working in the media, but also then bridging into public relations and communications. And that gave me an opportunity to meet lots of people across the industry, but also to start working with some of the major commercial partners within the sport. Uh, people would call them sponsors, but um, we call them commercial partners. <laughs> and that then led to my first team role, which was working with Eddie Jordan's fledgling Formula One team, so Jordan Grand Prix which was a startup in 1990. And I was with Eddie, apart from a brief break, I was with uh, the Jordan team all the way through until 2004. And I was on the management board from 1998. Uh, I was responsible really for all their marketing, sponsorship, commercial sort of operations uh, side of the business. So I used to joke that myself and a colleague, Ian Phillips, we used to bring in all the money and everyone else in the team just spent it. So that was kind of, <laughs> that was kind of my role. Uh, I then went from Jordan to a very interesting company called Red Bull Racing. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about Red Bull. Not heard of them. Yeah, never heard Who of them. Who they? Um, <laughs> and I was very privileged to work for Dietrich Mateschitz directly for, a, again, relatively brief period of time, just when he took over the team. And actually, when I flew into Munich this weekend, uh, I was reflecting on the fact that I used to come to Munich and then head up to Red Bull's headquarters to meet with Dietrich. And it was really interesting to, to deal with an entrepreneur like that on a one-to-one -one basis. It was a really very, I think, quite a special time in my career. After Red Bull, I was invited to run the Cosworth Formula One engine business. I took that on as another kind of career evolution. So you're moving from being in team management to running a tier one supplier. And Cosworth not only provided engines at the time, but also electronic solutions uh, to Formula One teams. And I absolutely loved that. I loved working uh, with such a legendary brand and also working with super talented engineers who can take a big chunk of metal and develop it into something that you pour a little bit of fuel into and it produces lots of power and uh, that easy. Uh, it was quite, yeah oh yeah i mean I, I used to walk through the engineering workshop and feel that you were kind of seeing alchemy in uh, in in, in, in action the way that they could do that so that's really was my executive career so really taking me through the kind of working in teams working with a tier one supplier working on different sides of the commercial side of, of the sport. And the last, uh, it's actually more than 10 years now, I, I run my own company called Performance Insights. And we work with team principals, we work with Formula One drivers, we work with some of the sponsors, uh, sorry, commercial partners. Um, and, uh, but more, inter more interestingly for me, working with companies all over the world who want to learn from the sports business of Formula One, which is why I was so delighted to come and talk to you today, Matt, about this topic, about lean That's principles amazing. and continuous improvement. You mentioned the um, the sponsorship or the, the commercial partners side. <laughs> I remember, and I can't remember what year it was, because um, the Jordan cars were always bright yellow, weren't they? Really stood uh, out. Yeah, for, for, a, for a number of years when we had sponsorship from a certain tobacco company, yeah. uh, we, we had bright yellow cars, yeah. Um, did it have it on the side? It was on the side pod, I think. And it, I was a member of it. So it just stuck in my mind. It was, was it Buzzing Hornets yeah. or something it said in big, yeah. black, I think it was. Really big on the side. I remember that. It sticks yeah. in my head. Yeah, well, we had, well, I, I, I'm sure I can probably say on your podcast, but we had sponsorship from 
Gallagher Tobacco. No, no relation of mine. Although I wish, I wish, I wish I owned the company. Side business. Yeah, side business. Yeah, side business. But Gallagher Tobacco uh, became uh, commercial partners of Jordan from 1996 onwards with their Benson and Hedges brand. And of course, in lots of markets al- already, in lots of markets at that time, you couldn't actually put Benson and Hedges on the car. So they had to come up with these alternate communications techniques to get the B&H across. So Buzzing Hornets was one of them. And uh, we we did we had a lot of fun with that. And it was actually one thing I will say uh, about the tobacco sponsors is that although ultimately we were promoting smoking, and there's no doubt that became an increasingly uncomfortable part of, of that whole relationship, the reality is that they were incredibly inventive companies. Their marketing and their their way of uh, branding the sport was incredibly inventive. And, and actually, I think to this day, uh, we look back and realize what a brilliant job the tobacco companies did. But of course, tobacco sponsorship then ended uh, in 2005. And uh, I'm very pleased to say Formula One has reinvented its business model in some really mm. exciting ways since then. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny how we just didn't even think about it at the time. Like as, a, as somebody watching Formula One as a child, it wouldn't even occur to me what was being promoted. Well, on that very point, I remember my son, when he was about six years old, I had given him a toy Ferrari and I asked him what the red and white meant on the car. And he said, that's, that's cigarettes, daddy. Wow. And, and I thought, okay, so although the tobacco industry doesn't overtly target children, here I have a six-year-old son who already understands that the red and white on the Ferrari is the Marlboro brand. And so that's really one of the reasons why the European Union, uh, along with governments all over the world, China, Australia, Canada, United States, got together and uh, banned tobacco sponsorship. And um, looking back, it it was a very interesting evolution. And it's slightly shocking to consider how recently that was. But anyway, we've moved on since then. And uh, here we are in 2023 with the sport, which has a much more diverse range of commercial partners and a much more sustainable business model. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible sport for reinventing itself. I think it, it's very good at doing that. When I go into organisations and we talk about continuous improvement and we talk about efficiency and we talk about 5S, everything having its place, one of the things that I always show, and there's a really good video on YouTube actually that shows a pit stop and it shows, I think it's Ferrari, and it shows a pit stop from like 30 years ago. Then underneath it, in the same shot, it shows the pit stop today. And it just shows how far it's come. And I think they changed all four tyres and released the vehicle in like 1.98 seconds or something crazy like that. Yeah, it's the yeah. epitome of what lean, what I would describe lean looks like. It's incredible. Yeah. From your experience, how has continuous improvement and lean principles sort of appeared in Formula One? How does that manifest? So this is such an interesting topic, because whether you have studied lean or not, if you work in Formula One, you become imbued with this deep desire to continuously improve. And continuous improvement in Formula One comes in lots of shapes and sizes. So we can improve our speed. We can improve the quality of the technology that we're producing. We can uh, improve the speed with which we design and manufacture the cars. So it's all about the efficiency with which we we do something better. And I think all of that stems from, you know, the stopwatch. If you if you think about the fact that when we started racing cars uh, over 100 years ago, the whole thing was about timing them. It's about how long does it take to do something and how can we make that faster? So from that stems this fascination with improvement and performance improvement, everything that affects and impacts performance improvement. So I think in the very simplest of ways, if you think about lean principles in terms of defining value, so value to us is doing something faster, better, more efficiently. You know, we we define that value and then we strive towards achieving it. So, you know, we're, we're doing all of the lean principles in practice without, in many cases, mechanics ever having studied them. They just know that that's what we need to do in order to be competitive. And I think this is why Actually, all sports tend to be fascinating to people in business. So you watch a great tennis player or a golfer or a football team or a rugby team or an NFL team. And you think, you know, what can I learn from that individual and what can I learn from that team? I think where Formula One takes things to another level is that to be a Formula One team, to be a competitive Formula One team, you also have to be a very competitive manufacturing business, uh, technology business. So you've got this huge team of people in the case of Red Bull racing 1,600 employees. So, you know, 
less than 10% of the workforce travel to the races. More than 90% of the workforce simply work in a factory that makes something. So actually, this has a far deeper, I think, relevance to the world of business because we really are trying to drive value in everything that we do across our business operations. And that's why the lean principles are so useful because we want to cascade that down through the business and percolate into every function so that we end up with a really optimized outcome for the whole organization. We had a previous guest from Toyota and he spoke about how in Toyota it's not referred to as this is we're doing this lean or we're going to do it in a Six Sigma methodology. It's just the Toyota way. It's it's the way they do the yeah. work. It's the way they do things. It's the culture. Yeah. So can I be controversial now? Yes, Matt? go for um, it. I love a bit of controversy. <laughs> so Toyota did Formula One for nearly a decade and never won a race. And, and people were quite shocked because they said, well, this is Toyota. This is the globally famous manufacturing business that has uh, such high levels of efficiency in its production. And, you know, you think about Deming and the Kaizen and continuous improvement and Toyota were kind of a watchword for that. But it didn't work in Formula One because one of the other things that you need to be competitive in our business is agility and ability to speed decision making. And that means that you break down hierarchies and really authentically empower people. And that's something which I don't think worked terribly well at Toyota's Formula One team. And I, I know this because I did an event uh, for London Business School a few years ago, and they asked me actually if I could help them with a particular challenge, which was a group of about 150 MBA students. And they wanted me to talk to them about what you can learn from failure. And I was kind of pondering about this and I thought, failure, who can I get to come and talk about failure? So I telephoned a <laughs> good friend of mine, Mike Gascoigne, who had been technical director at Toyota. And I said to Mike, look, I'm really sorry to ask you to come and give a presentation on failure. <laughs> but I said, there's so much to learn from it. And, and he came and he gave a fabulous presentation and talked about the fact that you really have to define the value of what you're trying to achieve. You know, if you think about that first bit of the lean principle approach, what does the end user need? What's the customer need? What's the value proposition? And within Toyota, one of the problems that they had was that every year they improved. So every year they congratulated themselves on improving. The problem was that their improvement wasn't as good as the competition's improvement. So you've, you've got to benchmark yourself against something, so against the competition. Mm. And I think that's, um, again, really an, an interesting aspect of working in Formula One is that we can have all the meetings in the world internally within our company about how well or how badly we're doing. But at the end of the day, 23 Sundays a year, we compete directly against the competition and the results of our efforts are published for the whole world to see at four o'clock that afternoon. So there's no room to hide. And when there's no room to hide, it has a way of crystallizing people's focus on what they're actually doing and how they're driving these outcomes. So when it comes to you know, defining value, what does it look like? When it comes to you know, how are we going to get there? How are we going to create a flow that gets us to that outcome that we're looking for? How do we establish the most efficient way to achieve our success? And to get everyone in the organization, I mean, ultimately pursuing perfection. And lots of people say to me, well, perfection is impossible. But actually, if you look at, the, for example, this year, 2023, Red Bull, at the time of recording, have won every single Grand Prix this season. Uh, of course, the fans and the media find it terribly boring. But I would say it's actually a brilliant example of perfection because the team have got everything right. They've got the best product they've got the best systems and processes in place they've stolen a competitive advantage and that's ultimately what continuous improvement has to all be about and they're not just won them they've won them by miles yeah. they've come from behind <laughs> they're just miles ahead aren't they yeah it's incredible yeah it is it is but there, there is again a, an interesting kind of observation of competitive formula one teams is that max verstappen and red bull don't turn up at a race hoping that they can win they turn up at a race knowing that they will win. And that there's a huge amount of confidence behind that based in the science of producing the best product and the best development. And I mean, I did an event with Max last year, Max Verstappen last year. I'm name dropping now, but I did an event with Max Verstappen last year where he had actually had a very poor qualifying. He had had a, he'd had a problem during qualifying. He was starting the race in 14th position. And I said to him on the Saturday night, you know, how do you think you'll do? 
And he said, oh, I will win. <laughs> and I said, you, you know that? And he said, yeah. He said, you know, our car is faster than the competition. We know what our, he said, basically, I have to overtake a certain number of cars over a certain number of laps. We have a strategy based around that. I know exactly where the overtaking places are on the racetrack. So you're talking about the team removing guesswork and injecting confidence into a strategy that they know they're going to follow. And by the way, they'll have a strategy, which is a plan A, they'll have a strategy that's a plan B, a plan C, and they have literally run through all of those. So there's a huge amount of confidence then injected into the team's operations because they have analyzed the problem or the challenge from every perspective and developed a strategy that they know they're going to deploy. That's interesting. So the, the overall objective is obviously to win the race, yeah. but they break it down by lap. So you need to overtake X yeah. number of cars yeah. this lap. Yeah. It's, it's all broken down to mini tasks. Yeah, absolutely. I, I gotta, this is going to sound like a, a bizarre segue, but my former boss, Eddie Jordan, was a very keen golfer. First and foremost, he's a frustrated rock star. But after being a frustrated rock star, he was a frustrated <laughs> golfer. And when he uh, sold the Formula One team, he he famously caddied for Paul McGinley, Irish golfer, in the BMW Challenge, actually here in Munich. And uh, Paul won. He, he won the tournament. And afterwards, he was asked by a journalist, you know, what, what did Eddie Jordan do for you as a caddy? Paul said, well, very interestingly, he said he took a Formula One approach to playing golf. He said, we broke my round down into sort of individual sections. And we kept, as we went round... He said, I kept talking to Eddie about, so what do I need to achieve at the next two holes? So looking at things in bite-sized chunks. So rather than looking at the overall round, actually looking at the incremental goals that were needed to get there. And he mm. said, it was, it was incredible. He said, it gave me a lot, a different perspective on playing golf at, at this level. So I think within Formula One, we, we love breaking things down. I mean, I always say it's like, we love breaking the car down, disassembling the car into every component making sure every single component is to the right spec, right quality, and then building it back up again to build a complete car. So every component does exactly what's required of it. So if that's a kind of at a micro level. And then at a macro level as an organization, we're also breaking things down. So how can we make sure we have an optimized system and process around everything that is needed in order for us to achieve our targets? And be that the pit stop that you mentioned earlier on, or be that the way in which we bring a, a hardware upgrade to the car, so develop some component or a piece of technology. You know, it, it's about having a process around that, mm. and it's a very process-driven industry as a result. Because when they obviously they move, sort of every every week or so throughout the season, they move to the different locations. Do they dismantle the car completely to move it? Is it completely stripped? Yeah, it's funny. People say to me quite often, "So, so where are the cars today? You know, where is the car?" Well, the cars are really only assembled for the race weekend, and uh, in between they are, you know, either being air freighted or shipped as as what we call a rolling chassis. So the the engine will will have been pulled out of it, and they'll literally just be, you know, four wheels bolted on so that it can be rolled on and off the the freight in, in transit. But in essence, the cars the car is simply an amalgam of components, and every component has a life. Obviously, the biggest component is the cockpit that the driver sits in. So that's a carbon fiber monocoque. We call it tub. So during the season, you'll have a certain number of tubs that are manufactured. And then onto those tubs are bolted the engines. The engine itself is part of the chassis. You then have, of course, the transmission on the rear end of the car. Then the whole thing is clothed in carbon fiber bodywork. And all that carbon fiber bodywork is constantly being evolved because that's the shape of the car and of course the aerodynamics and the uh, airflow over the car is a critical factor in determining performance so there's a constant evolution of of that and so really the car is just it's a constantly evolving piece of technology and we very seldom are at a point where you have the car it might be a few weeks in the middle of the season where the car is maybe in a kind of static development phase. But there's hardly a week goes by that you don't read about some team bringing an upgrade. And Formula One teams are essentially much more like software companies where we're bringing iterations and upgrades to our hardware and software. If not every race, then certainly every month you'll see iterations. And those iterations all cut to the topic that you're talking about today, which is our curiosity to continuously improve performance. And that's just the relentless 
pace that is needed in order to be competitive in Formula One. It's incredibly valuable. I suppose every second is worth so much. Yeah. So if, if they develop an upgrade and the team brings that to a new race, how does that work for other teams? Can other teams look at it and benchmark it or is it kept in secrecy? Can other teams copy it or do they sell it to other teams? How does it work? It's a very, it's a very interesting question because teams do watch very closely what their competition are doing because they want to look at the trends. You know, where, where are the competition going? Where are we going? Are we on trend or are we off trend? And so a team like Red Bull, even though they're winning the world championship, they will be very, very carefully looking at and evaluating as best they can everything that Mercedes are doing, Ferrari are doing, McLaren are doing to see if they can learn anything from that. So it's not that they are planning to go off and copy something. It's just that they want to understand the overall trajectory of development that those teams are following. And how we do it is quite interesting. So we will do very basic things like employ photographers to go and take photographs of visible changes on the car. So if, if a team brings a new wing or a new piece of rear bodywork, that will be photographed. It will then be analyzed by the team. So what have they done here? Why have they done that? What's the difference between that bodywork and the previous iteration? Why might they have done that? And then, of course, we can look at their publicly available information in terms of their performance. So you can look at the performance of the Mercedes-Benz car before an upgrade was introduced. You can then look at the performance of that car after the upgrade was introduced. So looking at publicly available data, you can start to gain an insight as to whether that upgrade that they brought actually achieved something or not. Um, we have recently had a very interesting example of this where the McLaren Formula One team, which had endured quite a difficult start to the season, brought a major upgrade just prior to the British Grand Prix, um, a couple of weeks before the British Grand Prix, actually. And at the British Grand Prix, Lando Norris finished second and his teammate Oscar Piastri finished fourth. And McLaren finishing second and fourth following an upgrade has caused huge interest amongst the other teams. Yeah. And actually, James Allison, who's the chief technical officer at Mercedes, has publicly stated that Mercedes are now evaluating what it is that McLaren did <laughs> to their car to make that performance improvement. So there's it's the same engine as well, isn't it? They've got the same engine. Oh, it's, a, and it's, the, same, it's <laughs> the same engine. And actually, Toto Wolf, Toto Wolf, who's the, the boss of Mercedes, said after the, the race weekend, he said, the simple fact is the McLaren is faster in a straight line around Silverstone than our car. Uh, so he said they've done something that we need to learn from. So there is this uh, constant kind of interest in what the opposition are doing. However, what I will also say is that it's not a question of then going and copying because what you see on the surface in terms of a visible upgrade usually only tells a small mm. part of the story. There's usually a much deeper set of changes that have taken place. Plus, no matter how closely you scrutinize a competition, you won't fully understand all of the intricacies about their specific car and design. So there's not much point in really going off and just trying to copy, copy and paste that onto your car. It's probably not going, it's, it's mm -hmm. not going to work. This is why I say that it's more about understanding the overall trajectory of development that teams are going in and, and learning from that. Are you ready to elevate your team's ways of working? Are you seeking fresh insights and growth opportunities? Our experts will assess your team's practices, providing valuable insights for improvement and celebration. Reward and recognize your team with this certification tailored specifically for creating an improvement culture. The BQF Academy accreditation acknowledges your journey, outstanding outcomes and future plans. Whether you utilize Lean, Six Sigma, project management, or continuous improvement techniques, this certification celebrates your incredible work and positive impact. Propel your team's performance to new heights with the BQF Team Excellence Culture Certification. Visit www.bqf.org.uk today and let's celebrate your success together. 13-time single prize winner, Dr. Jeffrey Liker and Toyota Kata author Mike Rother have created the Improvement Kata and Coaching Kata online course. This inexpensive, compact program is designed to transform your thinking and approach, making you a highly skilled learner and coach. Engage in deliberate practice to turbocharge your progress. 
You also get lifetime access to the materials, including all of the bonus interviews. Why pay up to 10 times the price elsewhere? Listening to some consultant. When you can gain direct insights from the masters themselves. Skip the rest and go with the best. Join us today and embark on your journey to excellence. Just click on the link below to start your journey. And it's true of business in general. It's very easy to see a countermeasure that someone's deployed for something and you can see it working, see the results it's driving. But you're only, like you say, you're only seeing one half of the story. You don't know what problem that was trying to solve. And simply by copying and pasting that into your organization without that prior knowledge, you know, it's unlikely that it's going to make any difference because you don't know what they were trying to fix. You might not have the same problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for for me, what, what I always wish I could do when I when I meet someone like you, Matt, and we we're talking about such an interesting subject from a business perspective, is I would love to kidnap you and take you. <laughs> it's all recorded, Mark. Be to, careful. I'd, 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 li- I'd like to ki- I'd like to kidnap you and bring you to a Formula One factory for a week and get you to sit in on the meetings that take place and then go to the race and at the end of that week to sit you down and say what did you learn because. I think your mind would be blown. I bet it would. And and why I find that so we'd, we'd love to do that is those of us who have been fortunate enough to work within the industry, almost inevitably, after a period of time, you start to take the, the system for granted. And this is just how we work. And then whenever I go into other businesses and uh, speak at events around the world to corporate clients, I'm very struck by what it is that larger businesses struggle with. And there's just so much there for so much excitement I feel from learning from how Formula One goes about things because we just have to do it. It's a non-negotiable. Delivery is, I mean, delivery is very visible, fully public, up against the competition. And by the way, all the deadlines are non-negotiable. So there's no point in us saying we've developed the best car in the world and deliver it to a racetrack on a Monday morning. The race was on Sunday. So we have to, we absolutely have to nail it all the time. And I love that about the industry. And the other thing that's interesting is that whether I took you to Red Bull Racing or whether I took you to a less competitive team like the Haas team or the Williams team, you would still see very similar sets of behaviors. Uh, So it's not like some teams are doing this and some teams aren't doing this. Everyone is more or less working in quite a similar way. There are usually other factors that then influence uh, ultimate performance. But from top to bottom within Formula One, there is this deep curiosity about continuous improvement and evolution and trying to do things in the most efficient way possible. I'm just sending you my address, Mark, so you can arrange that kidnapping. <laughs> uh, <laughs> men in balaclavas will jump out of a van at the yeah. corner of my street at a set time, yeah? Yeah, f- uh, far, fireproof balaclavas. Yes, will be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Formula One overalls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Red Bull overalls. Yeah. Um, so data analysis then, um, obviously it drives everything. And in a lot of yeah. organisations, people struggle with data. They don't have data to help them make decisions. And in other organizations, they can be really data rich. And I can imagine that's mm. the the example for Formula One is it's incredibly data rich. Yeah. How does that help drive initiatives and drive things forward? Well, I'm very sorry this podcast is so short because we could spend hours talking about this topic. <laughs> um, so digital transformation has been with Formula One for more than half of its history. So Formula One started in 1970 and really we began to harness processing capability and data and software from about the mid-1980s onwards. I introduced a couple of quite well-known companies into Formula One to help with our digital transformation. So when I was at Jordan, we brought Hewlett Packard, HP, as they're known uh, these more, more often these days, brought HP on board the sport. And you know we were in our infancy in terms of data. And really, from the mid-1990s onwards, we just saw an explosion in the use of data. And the Formula One became a data-driven sport. And we definitely went through an evolution where, first of all, we wanted to gather as much data as possible. So we fell in love with big data. Uh, I would say kind of there was about a 10-year period where everyone was like, how do we get more data? And then, of course, we realized that having lots of data is not that interesting unless you do something useful with it. So then it became about insights and data analytics. And this is where people like Neil Martin, who my company works with. So Neil Neil Martin was a pioneering data scientist, is a pioneering data scientist in Formula One going back 25 years ago. And Neil was one of the guys who 
came along and said, actually, you know, Formula One teams are very good at trying to avoid risk by ignoring it. And he said, what we can do by taking a, a kind of data science approach is we can start to embrace risk and gain deep insight into where the problems are and how we're going to fix them. And really, the last 25 years have been about Formula One embracing the opportunity of analytics on an incredibly granular level across all areas of our operations. So whether you want me to talk about how we achieve high performance or whether you want me to talk about how Formula One has improved its ability to manage risk and to be safe. So safety uh, within Formula One has been completely transformed in part because of our data-driven environment. So we have the information, we know where the issues are, we can do something about it, uh, we can measure, we can constantly measure improvement, and this enables us to go on an upwards trajectory. So if you consider that in the first 45 years of Formula One's history, we had over 40 Formula One driver fatalities, and in the last 29 years, we've had one further driver fatality. So what changed? Well, I think what changed was methodology around generating really powerful, positive outcomes. And so much of that came from having the data and doing something useful with it. And it's not as though we invented this because the world of aviation has been doing it for you know 40 years. We think about the black box data recorders. Well, yeah. what do black box data recorders enable you to do? It means that every time you have an accident, you can analyze what went wrong and then you can implement a fix so that next time that doesn't occur. So the world of aviation has been obsessed with continuous improvement for 50 years. And Formula One has kind of very much kind of adopted that approach. So whether it's to do with safety and risk management or performance and operational efficiency, we know that the truth is in the data. And this is why it's actually quite hard to watch Formula One now without hearing drivers like Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen or engineers like Adrian Newey and, and James Allison talking about the data. They always talk about the data mm -hmm. because that's where they get the insight as to how the team, the, the technology and the driver are performing. I love it when the driver argues. Max is really good at that. He argues back <laughs> as he's going around. How he's managing to do that whilst he's driving this car. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, and it's, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Because, I mean, people ask me about this quite often and they say, oh, you know, Max Verstappen gets very emotional or Lewis Hamilton gets very emotional while they're driving the car. Well, I'm not surprised they're emotional. I mean, they, <laughs> yeah, it's quite an emotive place. <laughs> it's quite, a, you know, they're dry, They're doing 350 kilometers per hour in this little carbon fiber machine. And they are, you know, multitasking to the nth degree. And then they have some engineer talking to them on the radio saying, oh, you need to do a pit stop on the next lap. Or uh, actually, we need to change onto a different compound of tire or what, you know, whatever, whatever the, the change is. And it's kind of within their mentality to question because at the end of the day, the driver can only be aware of a limited amount of information. So the driver's in a cockpit. They can maybe see 300 meters of tarmac in front of them. They don't know what's behind them, particularly if you're leading the race. You literally don't have mm -hmm. anything in front of you. You don't, you don't know what's behind you. Limited amount of information. You literally are information poor as a Formula One driver. Whereas the race team have got all the data they have all the information they know where all the competitors are they know exactly how the race is unfolding they have their predictive analytics they even know what's about to happen so quite naturally from time to time you get this disconnect where an engineer says mm. here's what we need to do and the driver says why 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 do why are we doing that because i don't understand um i'll tell you a funny story though when michael schumacher was dominating formula one he was in a press conference on one occasion and someone said to him so how did you know that was happening during the race? I mean, how, how did you make that amazing strategy decision? And Michael said, well, he said, I noticed that there was a giant television opposite the main grandstand. <laughs> and he said, on, on every lap, I was actually watching the TV as what? I... <laughs> yeah, as I drove past. And he said, because he said, that's on a straight and it's quite boring on straights. You don't have much to do with cars just going the straight line. So he said, I was watching the television screen and I saw, you know, I saw the, the television was covering what my competitor was doing. So he said, I suddenly got an insight as to what they were doing. And he said, that gave me the, the information I needed. This really shows, again, the curiosity that we have for mm. information. And 
Formula One drivers, be it Max or Lewis or uh, Michael Schumacher, the thing that they're very, very good at doing is plugging themselves into a process that the team has around looking at all the available information and, and delivering an optimal strategy. And although you might get a little injection of emotion now and again, it's only very temporary. And the other thing, Matt, is that I think the quantity of radio broadcasts that are actually shown on Formula One, it's less than 2% of driver uh, communication. So the media, the media tend to show the emotional bits. They don't show yeah. the they don't show the ninety eight percent of the time when the driver's going. Yes, absolutely, no problem. <laughs> Some that. of them are so interested though. Kimi Raikkonen used to always make me laugh. He used to be really emotive. He used to just leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. Stop talking to me. Stop talking to me. <laughs> yeah. Really yeah, 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 yeah. So that that and that that was <laughs> that really was quite funny because I remember that moment very well. And Kimi. Kimmy was kind of summarizing what I think many of us suspect, which is that from time to time, the drivers are so immersed in what they're doing, they just don't want any distractions. Um, and I do feel for the engineers because the race engineers quite often have to tell the driver something the driver does not want to hear. Mm. And uh, you get a little bit of friction. But Kimmy, Kimmy was um, a, bit of a, a bit of a legend for that. He's brilliant. And then recently, I think there was it was Lewis Hamilton and, and Toto Wolff. And Lewis Hamilton was complaining about, I think it was might have been the um, the Austrian Grand Prix where people were going off track limits. And uh, Toto eventually just came on and said, look, we know the car's bad. Lewis, please just drive the car. Just drive the car. <laughs> it made me laugh. Exactly. And they're doing this in that moment where he's driving so fast and there's so much going on. Yeah. Brilliant. Just get on with the job. <laughs> just get on with it. But but those, you were talking about the safety enhancements and, and the, obviously how the fatalities have massively reduced. You've only got to look, I think it was last year's British Grand Prix. Was it Yuki Tsunoda that completely flipped and then slid right across the track for yeah. yards and yards and yards and yards? And he came out completely unscathed. Yeah. We've had a couple of very serious accidents in the last uh, three years. Roman Grosjean in Bahrain, where his car had a very fiery, catastrophic looking accident. Yeah. But he, he emerged from the cockpit and from the middle of that fireball and... Um, went home safely to his wife and kids. And as you say, Yuki Tsunoda at uh, the British Grand Prix last year, the thing that is driving our safety outcome is going back to the sort of continuous improvement topic. There is a realization that the moment we are not changing something, the moment we're not being curious about improvement, we actually open the door to complacency and mm. we, we literally increase risk. So one of the biggest developments in Formula One safety in the last uh, decade has been the introduction of the halo. And the halo is a piece of, uh, I think it's nine kilograms of titanium that sits on top of the cockpit and protects the driver from any large debris that might come into the cockpit. Now, the introduction of the halo was based on an almost perfect example of lean and continuous improvement. So there was a determination that we would drive value by improving safety in a particular area. There was then a look at how that could be delivered. There was lots of testing carried out. We looked at the data. We looked at the way in which that improvement could be properly validated. And then a decision was made as to which solution to go with. And then the solution was implemented. And there is no question we have seen a number of drivers' lives certainly saved or protected from life-changing injuries. And I think Yuki Tsunoda was perhaps one of them, definitely Roman Grosjean. Interestingly, Lewis Hamilton, a couple of years ago, he had an accident with uh, Max Verstappen at the Italian Grand Prix in Monza. Max's car ended up on top of Lewis's cockpit. And I would say the halo saved Lewis from potentially serious injury or worse. So again, the safety story within Formula One is about where can we go next in terms of improving? How can we avoid complacency? Because the moment we think we've cracked it, the moment we think we don't have any more work to do in that area is the moment of danger. So we have to keep a relentless focus on that. It's funny, when when I watch videos now of times before the halo was introduced, the, the driver looks so exposed. Yeah. Like It's just, you, you didn't realise it at the time, as yeah. well, I didn't as a person watching. But when you see it now, it's like, wow. Yeah, so not Nigel Mansell, which is a... a a name that some of the older listeners might uh, might remember. So Nigel Mansell was the UK's preeminent Formula One talent for a decade during the 80s and into the 1990s. And uh, or last week, he got to drive his Williams Formula One car from 30 years ago. And when he got into the cockpit, the first thing he said was, 
my goodness, I was so exposed back then. And of course, back then we thought it was safe. Uh, we thought it was pretty good. Of course, we now look back and we're pretty horrified with what we used to accept as being safe. And of course, the big safety moment for Formula One then came when Nigel's arch rival, Ayrton Senna, lost his life uh, in 1994 at the San Marino Grand Prix. And um, he, was, he was leading the race at the time. And so within the Formula One community, we looked to that event in 1994 as a pivotal moment where we changed how we did things. And we set out to, in this case, put safety and risk management at the center of our outcomes, our desired outcomes and our, our value that we want to drive. And so that then drove a whole new set of challenges and opportunities, which we followed. And here we are incredibly 29 years later we have had one further driver fatality Jules Bianchi who was seriously injured in Japan in 2014 and passed away the following year but that what that served to illustrate was the fact that even when you are moving to a better place in terms of your outcomes there are still there are still risks and there's still challenges to be overcome so we can never this is why I say complacency is is our biggest enemy as, as regards that and that's again where the there's a, a, a deep curiosity about our continuous improvement and how we can make sure that we never do take our foot off the gas pedal in terms of ensuring that we have the safest possible outcomes. I can imagine it's a, you know, safety is paramount, isn't it? As yeah. it is everywhere, but yeah. even more so in a sport like Formula One. Yeah. I was uh, very fortunate for my birthday. My wife bought me some um, some sim racing experience at a place called Sim Motorsport in Medway in Kent. Basically, it's designed to be like driving a real car. And when you're going around and you go over the the curbs, for example, the car shakes. And, you know, I'm not a racing driver, although I thought I was. And um, as I'm driving around this circuit, I crash multiple times. And when you crash, you really do feel it in your neck, in your arms. Your whole body goes all over the place. So I can only imagine what it's like in a real car if that happens. Yeah, the whole experience of racing a Formula One car is pretty violent. And, uh, I mean, it's interesting what you say about doing that sim racing because the sim racing is in some ways an extension of what we do in formula one where we use simulators a lot and we use a virtual environment a lot to drive our improvement so back in the day and back in the day i mean at the beginning of my career uh, back in the 1980s uh, for us to for us to improve the car we would look at some rudimentary data an engineer would then go and design a component. We would then go and build that component. We'd bolt it onto the car and we'd send the car out onto a racetrack to test that component. And we had unlimited testing. So the drivers were doing tens of thousands of kilometers of physical testing of components and cars every year. Now in 2023, we have no testing. Uh, there's no physical testing of the car apart from three or four days before the beginning of the season. And that's because we have moved to a much more digital in environment where we create a digital twin of the car and we evaluate upgrades to components in the virtual domain before we ever go to the expense and frankly sometimes the wastage of manufacturing them so again if you think about lean principles and eliminating wastage one of the things that we have become obsessed by is let's not make anything unless it's going to add value so as a result all the teams have simulated drivers and the simulator drivers are driving a, a driving a simulated version of the car that the race drivers are actually racing. And in the case of Lewis Hamilton and George Russell at uh, the Mercedes-Benz Formula One team this year, there are simulated drivers, Mick Schumacher. And there have been a number of, this is Michael Schumacher's son, and there have been a number of occasions this year where Mercedes have said, you know, the work that, that Mick Schumacher has been doing in the simulator overnight has improved the car's performance at the racetrack from one day to another. Now, it will come as no surprise to you to know, Matt, that so many of these racing drivers that are today operating within simulators, driver-in-the-loop simulators, they also happen to be super keen on racing online as a hobby. And so esports yeah. e and sim racing has really taken off over the last decade and we have seen an acceleration of that during the covid pandemic where actual racing couldn't take place for a few months so a lot of the formula one drivers went online and started racing in the virtual environment and i think for me this has been a really interesting 
development. So what we're seeing is we're seeing the virtual world and the real world merging because mm -hmm. actually we're using this on a day-to-day -day basis within Formula One to take the guesswork out of what we're doing in the real world. So uh, we can do lots of simulations. We can try lots of things in a simulated environment. We can take risks in the simulated environment and it's avoiding wastage. It's avoiding risk. It's ensuring that we literally, we only commit something to the heat of battle if we know it's actually going to drive value. And I think motorsport's leading the way in this because of, you know, with the introduction of, of AI and things like chat GPT and stuff like that, yeah. in the business world, there's going to be far more of this virtual yeah. um, sort of colliding of two worlds, the virtual world and the real, real world. Yeah. I mean, I know in large organizations now, some of the training they do is virtual reality yeah. or the um, the Google glasses that depict what things are and what to do next. It's It's coming. And I think yeah, motorsport definitely are leading the way. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned AI um, because Red Bull Racing are partnered with Oracle and Oracle, our organization I've been fortunate to do a little bit of work with, and they are running about two and a half to three million simulations per weekend. This is, this is race strategy simulation. Wow. So instead of having a group of engineers sitting around a table coming up with, I don't know, eight, 10, 12 potential race strategies, You've got two and a half to three million simulations being run, and they're using artificial intelligence during the race to literally plot the best path to victory because the AI has a far greater capability than, you know, frankly, a group of human engineers. Now, here's the thing. We listen with great interest to the debate in the news media. This morning here in Germany, I was watching a news program about the threat, the threat of AI uh, to industry. And there was actually a really interesting contribution from a British computer scientist. And she was saying, we just need to all take a step back for the moment. When the internet arrived, when the internet age broke upon us, we had the self-same thing being said. People said the internet's going to take over the world, you know, it's going to replace jobs. And she said, actually, the opposite has happened. What the internet has done is it has given us a suite of opportunities to do things that we could never have dreamed of before. And that's exactly what AI is going to do. And certainly within the Formula One environment, what I think we have seen over the last 35 years is that the more we have embraced digital transformation and the power of data, and the more we embrace technologies such as AI, what that actually has done is it has enabled groups of human engineers to do things at a far higher level. So we are moving the value upwards because we have these technologies available to us. And I think, you know, AI, I mean, there are dangers. Of course, there are dangers with all technologies if they're used in the wrong way. But being something of an optimist, I have to say, generally speaking, when technology is used in a more positive, beneficial way, you actually see huge scope for improvement. So. I think that the the that you know the chat GPT thing is so so interesting. That's democratizing AI. Anybody can go and use it. I've used it. I was asked to actually to write a column for a magazine, and the column for the magazine was about AI within F1. So I got Chat GPT to write the column. <laughs> Brilliant. And it was great because it gave me I mean, it was by no means perfect, but it gave me an insight into just the capability. So if you give it the right instructions, give it the right clues, it can go off and it can produce a very coherent, not quite Pulitzer winning uh, column on, you know, the power of AI. So I think, you know, for, for me, this is just another opportunity for our industry to utilize a suite of tools that will enable us to do things better. Right, Mark, I'm going to put you to the test now. So forget about Formula One. This is going to be the biggest test you've ever had in your career. And it's called the yes-no game. Okay, good. <laughs> you can't say yes or no. That's how it works. You can't say yes or no. No, you can say anything else, but you can't say yes-no. And ironically, <laughs> yes-no is the two most used words in the English language. Yeah, this is going to be difficult. Now, normally, I give people the choice of free cards to pick their subject. But with you... We've already got a subject. Guess what it is? It's not Formula One, is it? It is! It is Formula okay. One. <laughs> it's all about Formula One. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to fire you a number of questions over a 60-second period, and your challenge yeah. is not to say yes or no and see how far you can get. Okay. Yeah? You up for this? Should we give it a go? Yeah. yeah. You could see Mark's face now. You'd see pressure. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> right, let's do this. So I have 60 seconds ready and loaded. Mark, if you hear the gong, that means you said yes or no, and you are out. 
Is Formula One the highest class of single-seater motorsport? Formula One is the absolute pinnacle of global motorsport, no question. Who is the governing body of Formula One? It's the Federation of International Automobile, FIA, based in Paris. Did you say the FIA? Yes. You said yes, Mark. You said yes. I caught you out. I didn't actually say yes. I I did actually say (laughs) what the acronym meant. Oh, and then well. I asked you if you said FIA, you said yes. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's do you know what it is? It's the follow-up questions. It's always the follow-up questions. Yeah, it's always the follow-up questions. Oh well. I had so many good questions there. Yeah, well you see you do, I, this is why I didn't become a Formula One driver. I'm not very good at competition. I'm much better at uh, much better at management. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've done a very good job, you made a good career out of it for sure. Really good very career. Good. Um, Mark, before you go, I want to hear more about your new book, which sounds super interesting, The Future Business Formula. Tell us a little bit about it. So The Future Business Formula is really a, a book that which came out of a collaboration between me and Adrian Stalham. Uh, my company is Performance Insights. Adrian's company is Sullivan & Stanley. They're a consultancy based in London. They are a fantastic company that I've come to know over the last uh, half a decade. And The Future Business Formula is really about helping leaders and companies come to terms with the world that we live in today, which is a world of volatility, uh, a world of uncertainty, a world of constant evolution and ambiguity. It's a sort of VUCA world that we live in. And the fact is that we all need to develop techniques, leadership techniques and approaches which enable us to deal with this world of constant change and transformation and disruption where the five-year business plan is almost now redundant because no one knows where we'll be in five years. I mean, very few people seem to know where we'll be in five months. So how do we actually ensure that we deliver what we need to deliver on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis now, and at the same time have organizations that can adapt and innovate in the short, medium, and long term to deal with the constant evolution within the world of business? And the reason why I collaborated with Adrian on it is Adrian is I mean, I'll I'll use the G word. He is a genius when it comes to explaining to organizations what they need to do in order to make themselves agile enough and adaptable enough to deal with what's in front of them in the real world. So this is not about theory. This is about the practical things that you can do. And obviously, from my experience of working in Formula One, where change is ever present, you know, we're changing race to race, weekend to weekend, year to year, technical regulations are changing, sporting regulations are changing, technology is changing, business models are changing. So Formula One is a kind of microcosm of business. So essentially, what we've done is we've taken my insights from Formula One, we've taken Adrian's practical experience is working with all kinds of fascinating companies. And we've brought the two together, we've meshed the two together into the future business formula. We've developed a number of principles that people can follow. The book is available at Amazon. I'm very pleased to say that we were a bestseller on four different Amazon categories of business book for uh, a number of days. Incredible. So that's all been very exciting. And it's something we're very proud of. So it's a future business formula by myself and Adrian Stalham. It's available on Amazon. Fantastic book to have been involved in. Well worth the read. Sounds brilliant. I'm going to get myself a copy and have a read. Um, It sounds super interesting. I'll send you a copy, Matt. I'll send you a copy. Oh, Mark, you're a gent. Thank you. That's really kind of you. You, uh, You just want my address so you can arrange that kidnapping. That's what it's all about. (laughs) I know where this is going. I'm reading between the lines. I'm going to send you a book, even though I completely flunked your 60 second challenge but anyway that's that's by the way no one will know don't worry about yeah. it no one will ever know what we should add though that was the third time you did it the first two times you did it you completed it you did the whole 60 seconds we wanted <laughs> to make it more interesting so we've only used that version that's what it was um, and how about yourself so you do a lot of public speaking if people are interested in having you come to their organization where can they go to learn more very simple my company is called performance insights we have a website performanceinsights.co.uk and there's myself and then we work with about 20 colleagues from formula one people who have been in senior leadership positions or are currently team principals team managers uh, senior technical people and essentially what we do is we define 
what it is a client is interested in learning about, and then we plug in the relevant talent for an event. And uh, I'm very happy to work with uh, companies large and small. And uh, we've had a we've had you know 20 years of experience of doing this. So. Brilliant. And by the way, your website, I really like your website. It's very slick. Thank very, you. You know, it's very motorsport esque. It's yeah. very nice. Yeah. Well, we we know it's important to have a, a good shop window into what we're doing, and particularly when you're working with high caliber talent in Formula One, we have had the great privilege for a number of years working with people like David Coulthard and Nico Hakkinen and Jensen Button, Nico Rosberg, Lewis Hamilton, a number of uh, well known team principals as well. Claire Claire Williams is a is a recent addition to our portfolio. She uh, led the Williams Formula One team for eight years, uh, one of the few women to achieve a senior mm-hmm. leadership role in Formula One. And Claire is fantastic on, in terms of topics around how you build and lead high-performing teams and that kind of thing. So it's it's an area that I love uh, speaking about, love sharing information and insights. And um, that's one of the reasons I'm very pleased to join you today for the podcast. I could talk to you for hours, Mark. I find it fascinating. Thank and you. I think you're such, you're full of wisdom and everything you say, I sit there and think, yes, yes, I'm taking a list off of the, yes, that's so right. Yes, I can see it. So thank you so much for giving us your time, especially when I know you're off traveling as well. I do really appreciate it. My pleasure. Some key takeaways from today's discussions with Mark. Continuous improvement in Formula One is commonly an organic way of working. Very few engineers have a physical education in lean or alike. It's ingrained in the way they work. It's the way they do things. Really love that. All the teams work in a similar way, for the top performing down to the least competitive. It's the way that things are done. Everybody uses data. Everybody works in exactly the same way. Agility is critical. It allows empowerment and speeds up decision making heavily based on data. Even when the stakes are super, super high, like they are in Formula One, every second counts. So much money involved. Failure is the way they learn. Incredible to think, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. Define the value of what you want to achieve. What does the customer need? Benchmarking against the competition is an important aspect to help drive innovation and improve performance. Mark spoke about it loads today. There's no room to hide. Results are published publicly. How amazing is that? You can't hide from what you're doing because they are published for everybody to see. The race takes place and within an hour, even quicker than that, the results are up on the screen. Free practice. The results are up on the screen. Everybody can see it. Really interesting to think that. Imagine that in the normal business world. Imagine whatever organization you work in now that you do something and your results are public straight away and all your competitors can see exactly what you've done. Then they can pop down and take a photograph of your product and look at it and see what it was like before and after. It's amazing to think, isn't it? It's really incredible. The overall objective is to win the race, but even when facing obstacles, the path to the target condition is adapted and broken down into bite-sized, measurable milestones that are all driven by data-led decisions. Mark gave a great example of this from his conversation with Max Verstappen last year. Max had a really poor qualifying session, which resulted in him being well down the field. But he was still confident that he'd win the race the following day. This confidence was built on a data-driven race plan that went into fine detail right down to how many cars he needed to overtake per lap and the how of where to do this. What's more is an initial obstacle wasn't taken as a negative. It was flipped into an opportunity to gather data and learn, better equipping the team for the future. This is a remarkable process and a great mindset. It can easily be transferred into everyday operations in your organisation. It even worked for Eddie Jordan when caddying for Paul McGinley in a golf tournament. I mean, there's no better proof in the pudding than that, is there? There really isn't. Now, curiosity to continuously improve and drive innovation and upgrades. Mark painted us a great picture of an environment where even where things are going well and races are being won... F1 teams don't sit still. They're continuously using data to evaluate performance in every area, persistently looking for opportunities to improve. This comes incrementally through updates to the car, but it never stops. The hunger, the drive and the curiosity to reach perfection. It's impressive. It really is. That curiosity for knowledge is just so ingrained in the sport. Now, F1 is a process-driven industry. To enable such high levels of performance, 
an extraordinary curiosity to continuously improve. Process and mechanisms are critical vessels to enable this to happen. Without this, the ability to develop at such a pace, improve and go again just wouldn't be possible. Standard work, standard work, standard work. They're not only monitoring data and studying their own performance, they're constantly monitoring what the opposition teams are doing as well. What upgrades have they made? What impact has that made? Always looking for learnings to help drive performance improvement. Formula One is an environment that has really embraced analytics. They use them all the time to enable them to manage risk, improve safety and performance. Absolutely remarkable hearing how this is done. Now, ownership across each and every single person just blew my mind. Everyone knows their role, how it contributes to the overall objective. And as a collective, without exception, everybody is working towards that North Star. And this isn't by luck. These are well-trained people supported with ingrained standard work and mechanisms which are the framework for innovation and ultimate success. It's mind-blowing. It's hair on the back of the neck stuff. It's brilliant. Now, the halo is a fantastic example of a focus on risk management to improve safety. Now, the halo, as Mark mentioned, is a safety device introduced to protect the driver's heads from potential impacts and things flying in or if the car turns upside down. It was developed based on data and the results speak for themselves. So it's not necessarily all about money and performance on the track. It's about making the sport safer as well. Now, AI and simulation play a massive part in modern Formula One. Teams have dedicated drivers to simulator racing, dedicated to using a virtual world to test new developments, increasing the pace of design through to conception, reducing costs of manufacturing potential upgrades that fail, and simulating race scenarios thousands of times, data which is used to develop race strategies. A fabulous example of the modern world blending seamlessly with human beings to do things better. What a conversation. So much we can learn from Formula One. Mark has just blown my mind today. In fact, I've left with more questions than I went in with. It's just a forest of opportunity. Absolutely brilliant. That brings us to an end of this episode of the Ever Celine podcast. Thanks so much to Mark for joining us today and giving us a real inside scoop into what continuous improvement and, and the way of Formula One works, how they're using it to drive safety and advancements in technology and just day-to-day -day operations. Absolutely fascinating. As I said, I could talk to Mark for absolutely hours. Brilliant stuff. And don't forget to check out his book, The Future Business Formula as well. Sounds fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading that myself. Now, if you like the sound of today's show and would like to hear more, please subscribe and follow the Everseline podcast at everseline.com. We'll also find episodes that you may have missed. If you can, please take a moment to like and review the podcast on the platform that you listened on. I'd be extremely grateful because your review means so much and I really do appreciate each and every one. Now, if you're on the social, search for the Everseline podcast, give us a follow and let me know about your lean efforts because I really would love to hear all about them. Thanks so much. And I'll see you on the next episode. And don't forget, Everseline, you know it makes sense. The Everseline podcast is researched, produced and recorded by Matt Sims. Visit everseline.com to find out more. Yeah.